0: Alright, let's go Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some uh, physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. Uh, we say this every week, but we say this every week for a reason. If you do not own a Bible that you can call your own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. We believe that God's Word is given to us for all kinds of really incredible, important reasons. But chief among all those really incredible, important reasons is that He uses His Word, the Scriptures, to teach us about Himself. And so unapologetically, I can say this, the mission of this church is for you to know God, for everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by that knowing Him. And so if you don't have a copy of God's Word, something you can read on your own, then you're, that puts you at a disadvantage for knowing God. We, we want to fix that. And so if you don't have a Bible, take that one. There's lots of other options out there. You can probably find prettier ones and cheap ones and you know free ones even. But like, we got that one. Take that one. Start reading it. I think God will use it. So Titus chapter 1, we're a few weeks now into our effort to kind of walk through the letter of Titus together. Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a a disciple of his, I guess, younger pastor figure that he trained up. Uh, Titus appears, we think, to have traveled along with Paul and even on Paul's behalf uh, to a number of places throughout uh, the the historical piece of the New Testament, Uh, and, and we think that he and Paul probably started or the word that we use in churches is planted a, a brand new church on the island of Crete shortly after the end of the book of acts all right paul gets out of jail we think about 62 early 63 ad and then he starts going off other places we think one of the places he goes is the island of crete he starts a new church titus is there all right uh, and we learn in verse 5 of titus 1 that paul eventually leaves crete but leaves titus behind to handle some things put the last few bits and pieces of things in into order uh, in Paul's absence and so somewhere in the neighborhood of 62 63 AD all right in fact we uh, Paul tells him specifically this is why I left you in Crete all right and so Titus has a clear mission uh, a clear to do list all right and even though the church was relatively young even though they they didn't have a lot of time for a bunch of problems to kind of pop up they had already figured out a way to have some problems pop up. Uh, we, we think some false teachers had already crept into the Cretan church or had been raised up inside of the Cretan church. So Paul writes this letter to a friend slash protege of his, uh, and he writes to help him fix those problems. All right, that's the aim of the letter to Titus. Here's how you're going to fix the problems that you're seeing, Titus. And what's Paul's solution? Those of you who have been here throughout the series. His solution is healthy local church leadership. And who doesn't want to get excited about that conversation, right? Like I get excited about that conversation. Why don't you get excited about that conversation? No, that's, that's Paul's answer to the problems that Titus is seeing. Right? You, you fix the problems that you've got going on in in. in in Crete, by raising up, in verse 5, he tells them, by raising up elders in every town. Not one special guy with a deep toolbox and gobs of charisma, but several guys with lofty character. A team of guys, men who love the church and own the responsibility of helping everyone else around them grow. Titus, you fix the problem that you're seeing in Crete by elevating qualified men who teach and shepherd and protect the flock. That's his answer. You don't need the latest growth program. You don't need to restructure your, your small groups to be you know, location-based rather than affinity-based. You don't need to like, drop loads of cash in order to update your worship space. No, what you need are a bunch of men who are above reproach and who are willing to stand tall. That's what you need. That's what will fix your problem, Titus. And so Paul, Paul calls those guys elders. Sometimes he calls them overseers. Culturally, oftentimes, we prefer to call them pastors, though that title isn't actually found anywhere in the New Testament and it usually carries different connotations than what the Bible means by it. But what they are and what they must be are normal men of lofty character who teach everyone else by both word and action what it means to follow Jesus in spiritual maturity. That's what elders are. In the last couple of weeks, the last couple of weeks, we've kind of looked at Paul's just incessant beating of the character drum. Over and over again, 17 things out of a list of 18 items. But, but then last week, last week, we closed out our time by looking at the one solitary skill set that Paul does mention that elders must have, the ability to teach. Verse 9, they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. That's what Paul says. Now, does that mean that elders all need to be you know, super charismatic and have a stage presence and be, you know, a gifted preacher? No. He said he'd be able to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Paul meant what he said. We may, we may try to spin it up into something more elaborate than that, but that's all he said. And you'd be able to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. This happens in a number of locations, and it happens through a number of personality types, right? It happens on a platform, it happens in a classroom, and in a healthy church, it happens one-on-one. All of the above. And smart, properly ordered churches will always kind of be pushing whoever God brings in the door, brings into the church family. They'll always be pushing certain gifted individuals into the, the, the category or the position that they can best serve the church. That's a good and wise thing for a church to do. But, it, but that assessment of those giftings is never, and I mean ever, anything higher than a second-tier assessment of someone. What we're looking for what we're always looking for, what we must be looking for is quality of character. And if that character isn't there, it doesn't matter how gifted that guy might be. He's a ticking time bomb. We don't put gifted people into positions hoping that that'll mature them spiritually. No, we put spiritually mature people into positions with the confidence that God will give them what they need to accomplish the task. And so Paul gives Titus instructions on what to look for in potential elders he says whoever is above reproach what do we what do we do with the false teachers that we got like they, they got a specific problem in crete right we got we got guys who are claiming authority teaching things contrary to the gospel what what do we do with those guys well that brings us to the next part of what we're going to look at this morning you ready for our text Verse 10. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says this For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. We're going to call time out there. So Paul sets up a a kind of a a contrast here, right? Uh, He kind of offsets these kind of two groups of people. He shifts from speaking of of the elevated character of elders to what is currently being experienced on the island of Crete, which, let's be honest, it's pretty much the exact opposite of everything we talked about so far. Rather than being known for their gentleness and and for their hospitality, rather than being known as lovers of good, (laughs) uh, Paul kind of lines up three types of bad leaders here. And, And there's probably more types than that, but Paul gives us three. Paul gives us kind of three examples of a bad leaders, teachers. And he says that some, some are flat out insubordinate. They are openly going against the rightly ordered, of the rightly ordered things that are in place. They're actively engaged in undoing that openly so. They're undermining the structure of leadership that has been established, even though if it's not fully, you know, kind of mature and established yet. But because we're talking about false teachers here, it also means that they are openly insubordinate to what is good and right in the public teaching of the church. They are intentionally undermining that. They're, they are openly teaching what they already know to be contrary to what was handed down to them. Maybe they're totally convinced of that false teaching themselves, or maybe they just, you know, the type of person that likes to watch the world burn. We don't know. But they know full well what they're doing. They know full well that their teaching doesn't line up, and they don't care. That's who Paul's talking about there. And maybe you're asking, how do those guys get around what the Bible says on those things? There are, it actually always follows the same exact trajectory. You ready for it? It's brilliant once you peek behind the curtain. The moment you say that the Bible is a voice in the conversation rather than the voice in the conversation, you've already started walking down a road you can't go back. Yeah, I know the Bible says this, but but my experience says that. In this poll I found from 2003 that kind of questioned like four people, it says that we ought to do this. Well, there are lots of opportunities in our world for those kind of people to, you know, have successful platforms, and probably, let's be honest, read a few books. I've read some of them. Well, there are lots of opportunities for those kind of people to create and live inside of the platforms they make for themselves, Paul calls those people insubordinate. They know better. They know better, and they press on anyways. The second type of bad leader teacher that Paul identifies is somebody he calls empty talkers. These are the ones that have a lot to say, but just not a lot of substance. Um, we all know people like that, right? I've been accused of being someone like that. Um, some Sometimes empty talkers are lacking in substance because... They, they're also lacking in understanding of the gospel. Biblical, biblically illiterate teachers, quote-unquote, kind of spewing out biblically illiterate nonsense. But that's not always the case. Sometimes, sometimes empty talkers aren't so biblically illiterate. They know exactly what it is they're talking about, but their strategy is to heap up a bunch of empty words because that overwhelms anybody who would ever try to question them. They'll throw out a hundred things at you, two of which will actually be relevant but by the by the time they get done with number one hundred, you're not really sure where to start anymore. Sometimes empty talkers are vacuous, and sometimes they are trying their absolute best to seem like the smartest guy in the room. but neither of those options actually helps people understand the gospel better. both of those options are. Self-focused attempts to kind of make much of themselves, right? and so Which means that both of those options ultimately harm the church. But there's a third leader that Paul highlights here, and that I think it's probably the most devastating of the three. He calls them deceivers. Those who walk in the door with an agenda. They're looking to harm others, they're looking to harm the cause of the gospel, but they hide it through lies and manipulation. They say things that sound right, that sound orthodox, but they don't actually believe what they're teaching. They're wolves, There's another word that the Bible would call them. They play the ruse just long enough to kind of lure others into letting down their guard. And the moment that that guard is let down, when they've captured that trust, they, they either introduce something that's contrary to the gospel, or they use that newly found trust to manipulate for other sinful purposes. Wicked men doing wicked things all while calling themselves a servant of the church. And while each of those three categories could honestly probably be fleshed out a whole lot more, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on them. He moves past them quickly. Uh, to, he kind of moves past theoretical categories and into something incredibly practical, an example. He says, especially those of the circumcision party. So who are those people? Who's the circumcision party? Obviously, that's probably not their preferred name. All right. But it is a pretty good indicator of what it is they're they're kind of putting their ultimate hope in. It it also, I think, gives us a good bit of insight into some of the troublemakers that have been rising up in Crete, at at least some of them. Uh, It it appears to be, uh, at least some of them appear to be kind of a... a group of Jewish background Christians who believed and taught that the Jewish ceremonial laws were still required for someone to come close to God, all right? Uh, Rules like dietary laws and ceremonial washing, and most notably, the reason why they get the name, circumcision, all right? They believe that those things were required for someone to be clean before God, so that God could be near to them. All right, and so uh, they believe that without those things, people were still separated from God and unable to draw near. And so, like I said, we're pretty sure that there's probably more going on in Crete, at least problem-wise, than just the circumcision party. But there also seems to—I think there also seems to be another group of like a, pushing a pagan asceticism. All right, we're going to get into that some, but Paul identifies at least the first little bit of the Cretan troublemakers here, the circumcision party. It's a struggle that, that Paul's dealt with a lot before. Like This is literally the entire point of the book of Galatians, dealing with the same kind of people in the Galatian churches. It's also something that the early church had clearly been teaching against for 10 to 12 years by this point. Uh, The Jerusalem Council happened in around 50 AD. This letter's being written around 63. And so they've been hammering this over and over and over again. And despite their clear and repeated teachings on this, it's still an incredibly pervasive issue that just keeps popping up everywhere. But Crete's version is a little special. Just a little different. Not only... Do the Cretan false teachers push a works-based salvation on everybody else? But we're also pretty clear that they are also giant hypocrites about it. And so they're laying these heavy burdens on everybody else, but they're not living up to it themselves. And everybody sees it. Everyone knows that these guys aren't living up to the thing that they're calling others to. And so what response should Titus take? Like, what should, what should he do about it? Like, it's one thing to draw a distinction between good leaders and bad leadership. And, uh, but this isn't some intellectual problem that we're dealing with. This is not some kind of hypothetical exercise. Titus is sitting on, sitting on the island of Crete. He, he's got a very real problem in a very real church, and he needs a very real solution, right? So what does he do? How does he fix the bad leader issue? Well, look at what Paul tells him to do. Verse 11. They must be what? They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Silenced? That's some strong language there, Paul. Literally, the Greek is bridle them. Well, That doesn't sound very Christ-like. Paul's a big old meanie doesn't have any grace, doesn't have any patience. So whenever we come to something in the Bible that we're not quite sure about, not quite sure why God says to do that thing or calls us to do that thing, whenever our instinct is to, is to kind of doubt God's goodness, when we don't understand that something, the very first thing we always ought to do is flip the question around and ask it in reverse. Let me teach you a Bible reading tool. If you come to something in the Bible and you're like, I don't think that makes God good. I'm not sure I can, I, I like a God who does that. The very first thing we should always do is flip the question around and ask it in reverse. In other words, what is going on here that is so grievous, that does so much harm, that the only appropriate response to that issue is to silence the one who is teaching it? ask it a different way how much damage does false teaching have to do before that is the right response and you can answer that question yourself what what do you gain by believing a false gospel answer is nothing That nothing includes salvation. You are still dead in your trespasses and sins. See, the reason, the reason why false teaching cannot simply go on is because it has eternal consequences. It has eternal consequences. We're not not dealing with something here that, you know, just really doesn't matter as much. No, we're dealing with something that matters more than literally every other thing. It's not limited to that. That's enough. But it's not limited to that. Paul also says that these false teachers are upsetting whole families. So what's that about? Well, it means that it's causing division between those who trust in the finished work of Christ and those who are trusting in their own works. It's it's causing division there. But that divide is not between those inside the church and outside the church. That divide is people within the church. And even families within the church. Literal and spiritual brothers and sisters are being divided. They're being set against each other. And those who claim to be leaders right now in Crete, through their false teaching, are the very ones causing that confusion and setting them against each other. They're making a giant mess of things. Those of you who have been forced to kind of sit and watch someone you love dearly fall victim to a lie, it's not like, it's not like life just kind of goes on in every other arena. It tears your family apart, right? As you watch them buy into an untruth, commit themselves to it. So what's going on in the Cretan church is not some ivory tower debate over secondary and tertiary issues. These false teachers are wreaking havoc that has both immediate and eternal consequences. And every moment they're allowed to continue does more and more damage. And So to be clear, To be clear, this moment demands a Christ-like response. However, it seems to be a flip-over-the-tables variety. Paul tells Titus to silence them, to bridle them. They are clearly only there for shameful gain, and so they don't get patience in this moment they don't get a little more leash in this moment what they get is decisive action Paul stirs the pot even more here in verse 12 though because this is fun this is fun all right. one of the Cretans one of their own said Cretans are always liars evil beasts lazy gluttons this testimony is true anybody who doesn't love the Bible's never read it all right so Paul quotes here some ancient pagan prophet from, we think, from Crete. We think it's likely a guy named Epimenides. Uh, Epimenides um, and if that is true, we're not 100% but if that is true, that means Paul also quoted him in Acts 17. Um, if you don't know the story, at a place in Athens called Mars Hill, Paul gives what I think is a master class in using a specific culture as an apologetic against that own culture's belief. Uh, he just absolutely tears them apart. He points to the idols in their city, and he quotes something that Epimenides, Epimenides had written about Zeus. Right? But he uses that to teach that the true God really is creator of everyone and everything. And oh, by the way, he doesn't need their puny little statues. Why? Because creators don't need creation to serve them. That's his point. The real God can handle himself. That little Zeus, he needs a bath, and he needs to be given meat every once in a while. The true God, he's okay. So Paul drops some Epimenides on the people of Mars Hill in order to call them out of their idolatry and in to a saving faith in Jesus. It's a really cool way of using a pagan writer that the Athenian culture would have known and respected and immediately connected with. But then we get to Titus. and Paul commandeers Epimenides for a different purpose here. Uh, He says that even Cretans think that Cretans are terrible people. Apparently, Crete had a little bit of a reputation in the ancient world. Uh, and obviously, Paul's painting with a, an incredibly broad brush here. Clearly so. But, but, I mean, if even your boy Epimenides is saying it, probably got some truth to it. Epimenides wrote what he did about 600 years before Paul picked it up, you know, 6th century AD. Uh, but he, he wasn't the only guy to, to say that. Not even close, a couple of other non-Cretan historians thought the same thing about Cretans. Uh, a guy named Polybius uh, wrote that, quote, almost, It's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Cicero, you've heard that name before, he once wrote, Moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. So does that mean that everybody in Crete has the same low moral standards? Obviously not. Obviously not. But somehow, somehow Crete earned their reputation, right? Crete came by it honestly. So much so that if you're more cultured, you, you may have even heard someone call some other moral, immoral person a Cretan even in our day and age. They get it from Epimenides and from Paul. And addressing the hypocritical false teachers that had risen up in this young church, Paul drops some epimenides on them and says, Hey, now, we all know that the island's got a reputation. We get it. We know We know the, t- the stories. I, I mean, <laughs> I lived there for a while. I've seen the stories. Even the Cretans think that all Cretans are liars and evil beasts and gluttons. So why does, why does Paul point this out? Like, it feels weird in the middle of a text about false teachers, Right? Like, is Paul just being mean? He's rubbing some salt in the wound right now. And I think he's setting up for what he is about to say next, the next step. Look at the rest of verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, therefore, because of this, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Sometimes, sometimes people need a gentle rebuke. That is a good and Christ-like thing when it is called for. But then there's some other people in the world, other people out there. They need something with a little more bite, right? I I tend to be more of a a biting rebuke kind of person. That's what I need. I need somebody to kind of slap me across the face and say, no, no, we're not doing that. All right? That's just who I am. Paul prescribes the necessary dosage in this case. This is a sharp rebuke kind of moment. The Cretans, they're not really a gentle rebuke kind of people. And the nature of the offense is not really a gentle rebuke kind of moment either. No, this is a swing the hammer moment. And a failure to rebuke at the level that is necessary. Failure to rebuke at the level that is necessary will actually never get the job done. Um, there are, Paul points to the situation, he, he points to the personalities in, involved, and he, he tells Titus that this is a moment that cannot be soft-pedaled. He doesn't have time to kind of ease his way into something a little less confrontational. This issue can only ever be resolved by acting quickly and decisively. There are some medicines out there that taking a partial dosage will give you a moderate effect, right? We've all kind of walked through that in our own health story and all that kind of thing. If you take a partial dosage, you'll kind of ease your way into kind of alleviating some of the symptoms, maybe not all the symptoms, but some of the symptoms, and maybe actually fighting off whatever you're trying to fight off. But then there are other medicines in the world that if you don't take the full regimen of the medicine, it doesn't work at all. We've all seen those too, right? One of those such medicines is a medicine, uh, a malaria prevention medicine called doxycycline. Have I ever told you the story of how I got malaria? <laughs> I got the opportunity just out of college to go to Ghana for a few weeks, West Africa. Uh, they've got malaria there, so I, I took a malaria prevention medicine. That's what you're supposed to do. And doxycycline, it has some side effects right, that are super fun. It makes you sensitive to sunlight, which is a problem when you're near the equator, all right? Also, it makes you sick to your stomach if you don't time your eating right, which is also a problem on mission trips because you just never know what's going on. So, super awesome sunburn and always a little nauseated. What a fun day. (laughs) But I dutifully took that stuff for the week before we left and the whole time we were there and for about a week or so after we got back. Awesome, right? Problem, though, is you're supposed to take it for much longer than a week after you get back. And I got sick. I got real sick. I spent a week in an internal medicine specialty hospital in Newark, New Jersey. By the way, also one of the reasons I hate New Jersey. (laughs) It's not the only thing on the list, but it's there. But what's the moral of the story here? Well, it's not. It's that not that not you know, treating the problem the way it was called for ended up making the problem way, way worse. Um, I got to experience all the super fun side effects of malaria medicine and none of the benefits. Like, that, That's a problem. And it happened all because 22-year-old Stephen was dumber than the person who prescribed it. I thought I was smarter, though. Clearly I was not. Paul calls Titus to some decisive action here. He says, silence them. Rebuke them sharply. The cuts need to be swift. It's time to act. You cannot soft-pedal this. You cannot ease your way into this because you're worried about what it's going to be received like. No, this moment calls for something decisive. But they are not Hear me, they very much are not the response of someone who simply lacks concern. Paul does not tell Titus that this, these people in this moment does not re- require gentleness because Paul's just anti-gentleness. No, he, he rightly understands the weight of what we're dealing with and he prescribes the appropriate response. And he's also aiming those false teachers at something better than what they deserve. What does he say he's aiming them at? Look at the end of verse 13 again. That they may be what? Sound in the faith. Paul's aim is not to merely run the false teachers out of Crete. Bridles and sharp rebuke are not punitive. They are instructional. Those are not the same thing. They are not punitive. They are instructional. Paul's aim is redemptive. Now, will those false teachers receive that rebuke with humility and repentance? Probably not. In the sin-broken world that we're living in, false teachers rarely, if ever, receive the necessary correction that they need. Horses don't exactly love their first experience wearing a bridle. Have you ever seen that? It's a tense moment. False teachers tend to enjoy their platforms. They tend to enjoy their influence over people. And so most often, the sad reality is, the most often you, when you challenge them, the moment you challenge them, they take the path of least resistance and they leave and go off somewhere else. That's generally how that plays out. And in that new place, they'll gather a different set of people around their false teaching and the process starts all over again. Welcome to the church leadership world. It's just a merry-go-round of heresy sometimes. The best case scenario, the thing we hope for, the thing that Paul is telling Titus to aim for, explicitly aiming for, is that they repent of their sin and that they learn to submit themselves to sound doctrine. That's the biggest win. It's what he wants for them. Look at verse 14. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So real quick, this gives us some more insight into you know, what the specific false teaching in Crete might have, might have been. The couple of times in the New Testament that Paul refers to Jewish myths, he's usually talking about kind of fads that had popped up around deuterocanonical Jewish writings and genealogies, meaning uh, extra-biblical writers that had already been rejected even by Jesus' day. People claiming to be Jewish writers that had already been rejected from Old Testament canon before Jesus even stepped onto the scene. And some in the early church kind of re-adopted those writings and tried to find special codes and prophecy for the church, which totally never happens in our day and age, right? There's nothing new under the sun. And that includes heresy. The same old junk always kind of finds a way to pop back up with a fresh coat of paint. And so these extra-biblical sources kind of passed around and seemed to have been a a driving factor in Multiple groups and arguments that were going back and forth being made by the different types of false teachers in the Cretan church. And some some were championing Jewish ceremonial laws. And others were kind of apparently pushing asceticism, a pagan uh, uh, abstinence of all of these different kinds of things. And we saw some of this in the letter to the Corinthians that we studied last year, First Corinthians. They forbade the eating of meat and drinking alcohol and even taught sexual abstinence within marriage. Because they saw the physical body as irredeemably sinful, and so they needed to separate themselves from all physical pleasures in order to finally draw near to the gods, or in the Christian sense, God. And So everybody's confused in Crete. Everybody's confused. It's a giant mess. So what do we do? What's the next step? Well, the Apostle Paul wades into that in verse 15. To the pure All things are pure, but to to the, the, the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So Paul revisits something that he has said over and over and over again throughout his writings, and it's something that Jesus said long before Paul ever did. It's not what goes into you that makes you clean or unclean, but what comes out of you. To the pure, all things are pure, Paul says but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So whether you want to try to cling to asceticism or cling to kind of ceremonial law, it doesn't really matter because neither of those things cannot actually gain you any kind of entrance into God's presence. Neither of those things can get you any closer to God. Unholy people cannot, and I mean that seriously, cannot white-knuckle their way into holiness. And holy people cannot white-knuckle their way into making themselves more holy than God has already declared. But then, wh- what? Why did God set up the ceremonial law then? Why did He give commands to the Jews to do this and not to do that? To mark out Israel as a distinct people and to teach them of the divide that exists between He and them because of sin. But then, once Christ fulfills the law on our behalf, and once the kingdom is opened up to the Gentiles through that same redemption work on the cross, the ceremonial law is no longer needed. You want to read more about that? Go read the book of Romans. It's About, about a third of it is dedicated to that issue. But Paul's point here, Paul's point is that asceticism, when you want to go with the, the, the pagan type or the slightly more religious-sounding Jewish ceremonial type, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Paul's point here is that all the asceticism in the world cannot actually get you anywhere if you are not already reconciled to God. It's pointless. But it's equally true that all the asceticism in the world, if you are already reconciled to God, cannot add a single thing to your relationship that God did not already freely give. You can't sweeten the deal of what the cross purchased on your behalf. And so for the false teachers to lay heavy burdens of ritual purity on everybody else is a gross failure of gospel proclamation. They're getting the gospel wrong. But then to turn around and fail in those ritual purity issues themselves, is, Paul says it's actually worse than having no purity at all. If you want to be judged by your ritual purity, go ahead. Let's see how that goes for you. All of Israel's history proves you don't have a shot. But for those who by the grace of God have been fully and forever reconciled to him by the death and resurrection of his son, for those who have repented of their sin and placed their hope and their faith in his finished work on their behalf by his death and his resurrection, uh, all things are pure, Paul says. All things are pure. And the things that flow out of us, including our good works, now take the shape of the Holy One who calls us His own. Does that mean that we, we nail everything that we're trying to do? Not even close. Does that mean that we don't still struggle and fight off sin? We, we, we spent a whole like, Fruit of the Spirit series talking about how we, we need a lot of work on this. But for those who belong to Jesus... Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. All things are pure. Because He is pure. Which is why Paul can point to the contrast playing out in Crete in verse 16. They, the false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit, for any good work. See, rather than laying the requirements of ceremony or asceticism on everybody else, the gospel actually changes you into something that organically produces righteousness. We've said it half a dozen times now throughout the series. Right gospel knowledge must necessarily produce right gospel living. Right gospel knowledge must necessarily produce right gospel living. It is a natural byproduct. So much so, That a lack of that right gospel living is an indicator that something is very, very wrong. Paul says, the false teachers in Crete, they profess to know God, but look at them for a while. You know better. They deny him by their works. Jesus said it a little differently. You will know them by their fruit. Those claiming authority in Crete are lacking both, knowledge and life. Paul says they must be silenced. They must be rebuked. Our hope is that they will one day receive that correction well, but even if they don't, the stakes are far too high to treat this with anything other than what is actually required. Hurry up, Titus. We've got to act now. But when we do this stuff today, right? Like, I mean, I, I would hope, I would hope, that no one in here is thinking, you know, we've really got this false teacher that we got to do something about. Maybe you do, and the action step is clear. But let's say for the sake of argument that we are in a good place right now. All right, just hypothetically. We're not dealing with what Crete's got having to deal with. And so, what do we do with God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the unfortunate reality is that one of these days, you're likely gonna be. Just the truth. You're eventually going to find yourself in a very Cretan scenario. And so it's always better to learn the lesson before you're in the middle of it. When that day comes, there is a very clear biblical mandate as far as how to move forward. So our response this morning is, It's the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And and, and this week, I think he's showing us that he is the exact opposite of those who would posture themselves as empty talkers and deceivers. He is the exact opposite of the reputation that the Cretans had apparently earned. But at the same time, he is actively saving and redeeming and raising up even Cretans. Can I be honest with you, that's really good news for me there are mornings that I look in the mirror and I'm more Cretan than I wish I were. More Cretan than I'd like to believe I am. And so if God is doing that for even them, I can trust that He's saving and redeeming and raising up semi-Cretans like myself. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside for, uh, for you to kind of flesh out some action in whatever way God is calling you to. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? What do you do? I'm glad you're here today. I really am. Uh, you're, you're walking <laughs> into an environment where we're spending a big chunk of time kind of focusing all of our attention on the church, right? And leadership in the church and all those kinds of things. And, and I, I don't, but I don't think it's some accident that you're here this morning. I think God is, in His sovereign wisdom and goodness and, and control, has actually placed you here this morning. So here's what you need to take home today. We want to be a church who places all of our eggs in the because the Bible told us so basket. That's who we want to be. That's, that's who we feel like we've been called to be. And we want to structure our church and our church's leadership after the, after the patterns that we see laid out in the Bible. It will be a long, long way down the road before we bring other voices into the equation. That's, that's something you need to learn. Why? Well, because we believe that Jesus really is who he claims to be. And he really did what he claimed to do. He really is God in the flesh who came to make payment for our sin and to reconcile us forever to Himself. And and He has left us here. We have a purpose. Like Titus had a purpose, we have a purpose. He has left us here to make disciples of all nations until the day He calls us home. And So we want to get it right. We think eternity is on the line, but we also think that that's our responsibility, not yours. That's something we're working on. You have a responsibility that comes long before that. It's to be reconciled to Jesus. The Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated from God relationally because of our sin. That we are owed the just and right punishment for our sin. God's wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God made a way where there was no way. Jesus came, he lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a holy and perfectly innocent substitute in our place to make full and final payment for our sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. As the one who conquered sin and death and holds all authority in heaven and on earth, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. You can meet Jesus by responding in faith to Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. Maybe here this morning you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's, uh, it's time to uh, join formally join our church family. Or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus' call to be baptized. Or maybe... Just maybe he is calling you to take his gospel to some other far away place and it's time for you to publicly say yes to that. Whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond today, let's all respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Titus. Thank you for clear commands about what to do when things aren't right. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us clarity? Would you give us the courage to act when we need to? We're dealing with eternal matters here that trickle down into earthly matters as well. Help us stand tall on what is good and right. Uh, Help our leaders here, me and everyone else, Never be the type that could ever be called deceivers or empty talkers or the insubordinate. Rather, those who love you and love our church and love the truth. We need your guidance in all of these things. We're, We're too small. And we fail in so many ways. But in your goodness, you've called us your own. And you've equipped us for the things you're calling us to. And you sent your spirit to walk with us as we do it. And you promised to clean up our mess at the end. I'll call that a win. We love you. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you? Would you call people into your kingdom today by your grace? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.